Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Hallie Perry. Today, we're welcoming Claire Cox to read from her new novel, Silver Beach, which was the winner of the 2020 Juniper Prize for Fiction. She'll be in conversation with Claire Needham. Before I introduce them, I just want to remind you that Skylight Books offers curbside pickup and online ordering on our website, skylightbooks.com. Now on to the show. Claire Cox is the author of Silver Beach, published by the University of Massachusetts Press. She holds an MFA in creative writing from Hunter College and was a finalist for the Missouri Review Jeffrey E. Smith Editor's Prize. Originally from San Diego, she lives with her husband and son in New York City, where she has taught high school English since 2005. Claire Needham is a writer living in New York City. Her fiction and poetry have appeared in The Stinging Fly, Plowshares Solos, New York Tyrant, Grub Street, Burning House Press, Catapult, Bodega Magazine, and elsewhere. She has an MFA in fiction from Hunter College and has received support from PEN America, the Elizabeth George Foundation, McDowell, Yaddo, and the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. Welcome, Claire and Claire. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we'll start today with a reading um, from Silver Beach, and then they will take it away with the conversation. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much. It is such an honor and a pleasure. Um, I'm going to read from basically the middle of the novel. This is from the point of view of Shannon, the younger sister. On what might be the third day, She wakes up at an hour with no shape, just gray light. Noises in the apartment. Why? Who? A wedge of foam between each thought. A surprised voice. A scratchy voice. Women. What women? Are they coming to seize the apartment? Has she been here for months, blazed on her bed, eating Chex Mix, long enough to get herself evicted? She sits up stares through the window at the oleander for answers. The power line stretched behind it, the stucco cube across the street, the colorless sky. The voices go on, but she can't make out the words. Hunger pushes her out of bed, 
Unless she's eaten it all, there's a cupboard stocked with shiny bags and boxes of chips, crackers, cookies, puffs, kernels, corners, combos, all the best nouns. Their bright familiar logos like billboards on the road of her new life. Post Texas, post Brandy, post Linda. She should have kept a journal. There were big thoughts. She can't remember them now. She cracks her door and peers through it, but it's just the voices, no people. Maybe she's dreaming them. Ah, she remembers a big thought. Shame cripples you. Stand tall and be proud of your beauty, even if you're ugly. Was that it? She straightens, squeezes her thighs, throws her shoulders back, and marches into the bathroom. The mirror greets her with a horror. Side ponytail. A halo of bedhead fuzz. Eyeliner, why? A wrinkled t-shirt she doesn't recognize. Boxer shorts. Who's boxer shorts? No shame. She'll face the evictors. Maybe the police have come to confiscate her looted weed. Too bad there's none left. They'll repossess her junk food. She threw the credit card in a parking lot trash can when it stopped working, but she could still be arrested. Better maybe to go back to bed. A presence in her bedroom. Unclear how much time has passed, a minute, an hour, a month. Everything is a little sharper, louder, like she took off her headphones. She blinks a crusty eye open. A tall, beautiful woman is staring at her. A linen dress the color of mud, a necklace at her collarbone, a bracelet. One of those women with long, bony limbs who will grow old skinny, who has never been fat gray-brown hair that falls to her shoulders. The same family of color as the mud-colored dress, shades you see in a march, a marsh, or a beach. Gray-green-blue eyes that make Shannon think, if you were going to find a pool in a forest that would tell you the future, this is the color. This woman knows her. Shannon opens the other eye and half sits up. The woman sighs. Shannon sits all the way up, crosses her legs, Everything she'd imagined or remembered about Mara is right. She is perfect. She's an adult in a way Shannon will never ever be an adult. If Mara makes a rare bad decision, she won't apologize for it. She has a reason. And if that reason is wrong, she'll have you believe it's right. It's a scary authority her half sister has. Like she doesn't have to work to be in charge. She just is. She's a teacher or something that makes sense. Mara looks at Shannon's bed, her floor, her piles. She turns around and stares past the oleander. She's looking for somewhere to sit. She folds her arms around her middle, lowers herself to the edge of Shannon's mattress and it bends toward her weight. I'm not in jail, Shannon says, surprised at her voice. Hmm, Mara replies. The pieces find each other and form the corner of a jigsaw puzzle. If Mara is here, her mother is here. The owner of the other voice, Linda, alive, possibly with a bedpan, a walker, an IV, a paralyzed face, drool. Shannon is not in Tennessee. She's never going to be friends with Brandy again. Her boss at Rite Aid probably won't give her another chance. She'll have to get a job at CVS. How will she work if her mother is drooling over a bedpan? There's no more weed left. Do you need a minute? Mara asks. Huh? Take a shower. Mara looks around, 
her eyes stabbing the room's little disasters. Shannon remembers her hunger. The snacks are in the kitchen, which is 100 dragon-filled miles from her bedroom. She reclines and pulls her sheet up over her head, wiggling down. With a gentle but decisive hand, Mara pulls the sheet back. Please get up, take a shower, get dressed, eat lunch with us. You can't say no. Shannon would love to find the one person in the world who could say no to this woman. Mom doesn't eat, Shannon says. Sure she does, Mara says, and rises from the bed, tipping Shannon back toward herself. She's a lot better than I thought she'd be. Mara seems neither pleased nor surprised as she lets herself out and closes the door behind her. A moment later, she opens it again. Shannon has not moved an inch or breathed a breath. It's time, Mara says. Thank you for that reading, Claire. Um, it reminded me of how excruciating it is to be alive some of the time. And in Shannon's case, much of the time. <laughs> yeah. I thought maybe you could start by telling us a bit more about who Shannon is, who Mara is, who their mother Linda is, and how they've come to find themselves together again at Linda and Shannon's house after a lifetime of living apart from one another. Mm, okay. Well, Linda is their mother, and Shannon and <clears throat> Shannon and Mara are half sisters. And they all lived together when their older sister, Allison, was still alive. And Allison drowned um, in the Pacific Ocean when they were all really small. Shannon was a baby and Mara was a little girl. And at that point, Allison and Mara's parents were divorced and their father lived in Boston. And Shannon's father had come in and already left. <clears throat> And when Allison drowned, um, Mara's father came and took Mara with him to Boston and Shannon stayed behind in California and she grew up with Linda. And um, so when the book starts, they're 33 and 27 and Linda is on a liquid diet of vodka uh, with pills thrown in for fiber. Pills sometimes. for fiber. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she has had a heart attack and she just needs a little bit more help than usual. <laughs> and Shannon called Mara to come deal with it. Um, and Mara, much to her own surprise, came. And so the novel is what happens when they're together. And this is the moment when they actually find themselves together. Right. And so when you, when you were first writing this story were Mara and Shannon always sisters or were they were they always in your mind as sisters or technically half sisters yeah that was part of the sort of fundamental premise um I so the germ of the novel happened when I was listening to an episode of This American Life in 2009. I used to just walk around the city listening to This American Life and hunting for story ideas for stories. Um, I found it to be really generative to walk and listen to that show. And um, I had to, I listened to this show a second time because the app was malfunctioning. And as I was listening to it, I remembered how 
it just like it left me prickly all over like it was really haunting and I was really captivated by the possibility of two half siblings being in the same family and growing up in utterly different circumstances and finding themselves as adult in fundamentally different socioeconomic positions and having a different sense of themselves in society and different levels of precarity and different senses of what's possible and a different sense of what a parent represents and what what counts as stability yeah and so in in the story that kind of inspired it, it it's a it's from it's called duty calls by josh Behrman, and it's about him and his brother and his mom um but this is yeah so the, the 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 essential dynamic is there but nothing else is from that story so how did how did allison come into the story or come into your imagination allison the the older sister the the golden child the child that linda the mother loves best the child who drowns at nine do you know i actually don't remember <laughs> started this novel 10 years ago and I don't remember when Allison I, I mean I think she was there from the beginning because there was it, it started for a long time with this um what is it called is a coda only at the end yes a prologue yeah I guess it was a prologue it started uh -huh. with this like poetic prologue about that sort of like hinted in a very dreamlike way at, at Allison's existence and, you know, extinction. Um, and how this is the tragedy that kind of set them all spinning on this um, nightmarish alcoholic journey. But I don't remember when I wrote that. <laughs> That's so interesting. I mean, it's, it's absolutely true. She is sort of like the, or her, her death is sort of the origin of the nightmarish alcoholic spinning that never stops. Yeah. Um, because Linda, I mean, she recollects like she was about to kind of just call it quits and stop drinking right. and call it quits on Shannon's dad. And then that happened and she just gave up at that point. Right, right. Um, and so maybe you could talk a bit more about the socioeconomic precarities that Shannon and Linda especially find themselves in, and then the contrast in life and maybe level of precarity that, that Mara lives on the East Coast in Massachusetts. Yeah, um, so Shannon and Linda survive on Linda's ex-husband is paying the rent. Um, Linda's ex-husband, we should say, is Mara's father. Is Mara's father. And, and Mara doesn't know that all these years her father has been paying Linda's rent. Neither of them do. Neither Shannon nor Mara know, right? No. Um, and Linda gets a disability payment that is sort of, she was sort of grandfathered in. I did all this social work research. Um, you can't really, you can't get disability for alcoholism anymore, but you could when she applied for benefits. Um, so they, they just have this like, you know, this really shoddy 
uh, net of public benefits and they have rent coverage, which is really significant. And Shannon has worked at Rite Aid for a really, really long time. So she makes a little bit more than minimum wage. Um, and she also pals around with Brandy who has a kind of like unending supply of credit card money from her parents. Um, and better weed. Yeah, like dramatically better weed. Right. And so that's how Shannon and Linda get by. And Linda obviously doesn't eat a whole lot. Um, so yeah, like it, sometimes it, it's, it's occurred to me to want to, and I have tried to do the math of whether they actually could get by on this. And I'm not totally sure, but I've also met people where I'm like, I don't know how you get by and, and, people, and people get by. Um, like I had to make sure that Linda could literally survive, like literally be an alive person considering her drinking and her lack of anything else. And that was one of the first things I had to clear up. And I called, I spoke with some doctors and they kind of laid it out for me. Like you can survive in this way. This is what your life is like for about X amount of years or whatever. And I think it was important to me that she kind of defy uh, any notion of what's possible like can it be that bad it can and I didn't want their precarity to to be like that um because it's not obviously you can you can live in much worse circumstances than they do but anyway so yeah so Mara like Mara's father is an attorney and she you know and he bought their place in uh Brookline Massachusetts when housing was a tiny bit cheaper and he's super stable and she's like really conservative with her money and right she has an excel spreadsheet where she tracks her safe investments and yeah, then like, at, at, no no go at, ahead. at one point mara tries to calculate whether shannon could survive could live on her own based on her slightly more than minimum wage job at rite aid and thinking like, you know, say she makes $14 an hour, say she works $40, works 40 hours a week. Is that possible? And she comes to the conclusion that no, it's not no, possible. It's not. Right. It's, it's not possible for anyone in this country. No, no, not at all. And, you know, like one of my obsessions is, is a sense of precarity and both how it's and it's just manufactured by late stage capitalism and the appalling lack of just you know support or safety net that our country provides and also like it might just be my own my own special manifestation of anxiety that that's where it lives um, I, I grew up with a certain amount of precarity, N nothing like I never doubted that food would be on the table. Um, but there were mushrooms growing out of the ceiling of my apartment. And, um, and I had a sense like I, I, I got myself into this like sort of fancier high school, I transferred high schools, and my friends would, um, would drive me home because I didn't have a car. And sometimes they were like a little freaked out by where I lived, like, should I lock the doors? So this was this was in San Diego, mm -hmm. in a neighborhood not unlike Silver Beach, which is in fact. Oh no, I did not grow invention. up in right. No, so yeah, so Silver Beach is more or less Pacific Beach. Um, it's kind of like a mashup of Pacific Beach and Ocean Beach and Imperial Beach, but it's mostly Pacific Beach. But it's also kind of my like imaginary 
version of it that's tinged with the melancholy of my family's story. And, and also just my like very ambivalent relationship with San Diego. Um, but I grew up in San Marcos mostly. And San Marcos kind of has a, a more working class reputation than the, the city I went to high school in, which is Carlsbad. And so when your friends drove you home, they were responding to the appearance of a more working class neighborhood or the stories coming out of that neighborhood or both. What was it? Yeah, it was both. Yeah. I see, I see some of that in Shannon's character. Um, she thinks about how Brandy, her friend, has this other group of friends and Shannon can never really enter that circle. Mm -hmm. And it's in part because Shannon lives in Silver Beach and it's in part because she works at Rite Aid. And she just, I mean, Shannon feels fundamentally unentitled to anything. She doesn't feel entitled to confidence or to friendship or to security or to love. Yeah, certainly not to her mother's love. Or like, like you know, like partner romantic love or, um, you know, she's always, she's always questioning Brandy. Like, why are you friends with me? Right. And they're like ride or die. Like they're really tight. Right, they go to New Mexico together. They go to, almost go to Texas together. They almost go to Tennessee together. They almost go to Tennessee <laughs> together. Oh, there's yeah. so many thwarted, um, thwarted desires in this book. Yeah, so early in Silver Beach, you have this chapter, um, which was one of my favorite chapters, where Shannon, I, th I think the chapter starts with something like, you know, by high school, Shannon had learned to hide, not that anyone was looking for her. Mm -hmm. And uh, you go on to describe how she catches some 12 year old boys huffing markers or paint or something beyond the Rite Aid and she yells at them. And then she decides that she's going to do it herself. Mm -hmm. And this then starts like years of huffing paint and so on. And especially shoe polish, which she mm -hmm. considers like the finest thing to inhale almost like a fine liquor, which is just devastating. And I know you'd spoken about how you weren't sure what to do with this chapter or whether to keep it in the book. And I was wondering why or what, what in you resisted it and then ultimately made you want to include it. I love that you love it because I really did almost kill it so many times. I, I think it was more a sense, it was more of a mechanical sense of momentum it seemed to dip, it seemed to just kind of drag there. But it kept throwing off the rhythm of the, like the order of the points of view when I would cut it. But I think I submitted it as a, I submitted the beginning of the novel as a writing sample to various whatevers. And I would always cut that out and replace it with something else like the, like Linda at the hospital. Mm -hmm. Totally, and I, I think, it's a little different maybe. That's what, yeah. I'm, maybe that's what I'm picking up on. There's sort of like a, a you know, a, mordant wit and humor in much of the rest of the book and there's actually nothing funny about Shannon passing out on a pier and nearly dying the day she graduates from high school yeah it's a real downer it's a downer but you liked it <laughs> I did I did I, I think I think it's it endears me so much to her character 
Yeah. And, and it helps me understand her torpor as you described it or her sense that like she really she really can't make the right decisions for herself she really doesn't know what to do whereas mara who suffers in her own quiet way has has done quite well she's able to mask all of that pain mm -hmm. and even linda who's a non-functional alcoholic it's almost like Linda takes a lot of comfort in her fantasies mm -hmm. and can live in her head and Shannon cannot. Yeah. Kind of nowhere for her to go. And I think, I think that's why I love her so much as a character. I mean, I, this is just occurring to me. I think Shannon is the one who inhabits her body the most in a way out of those three women. Like, yeah. Linda is obsessed with her physical appearance, but she's obsessed with a fantasy of her physical appearance. But otherwise she's living in her head. She's like floating disconnected from her body. And that's why she's able to just not give a fuck because her fantasy life is pretty awesome. Um, and and Mara, Mara is also like just living an out of body existence. And it, yeah. it looks very dignified from the outside, but, but Shannon is like, she's in it and she's like, Ugh, oof. She's in it. There's there's something so present tense about Shannon. Yeah. Like she's always in it. And and I think that's interesting what you what you say about the body because maybe that's why I responded so much to all the amazing and hilarious passages where Shannon is going to Denny's or going to Jack in the Box and ordering the uh chicken tater melt munchy meal too early because it's not yet time for the stoners menu. I just love that. And so I think it's maybe it's actually related to Shannon's relationship to food and the comfort she takes in food and the familiarity of Denny's and the familiarity of a diner. Yeah. Yet Linda and Mara don't have a pleasurable relationship with food at all. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. I mean, yeah, Linda doesn't really eat. Mara eats very slowly mm -hmm. and is happy with a sandwich. Whereas Shannon wants like the full, she wants to order everything on the menu. Yeah. 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 And maybe we could talk a bit about um, the time you devote to these places that aren't usually described in fiction or maybe quote unquote literary fiction, mm. which are the, the Denny's of America, the Rite Aids, the places where you, you, you want to pass through and leave. You don't want to think about them while you're there and mm -hmm. you don't want to, you don't want to inhabit them, but, but Shannon lives in those places. As do we all, we're yeah. all in the outer Las Cruces motel six. Something Super like eight. that. I almost said Motel 8. I'm like, it's not Motel 8. It's Motel right. 6. Um, what, what about these places? <laughs> yeah. What, what makes you, like, what is the imperative in describing them? Um, since I was five, I have registered uh, a sadness about these places um that i that i wasn't really able to put words to um but i so i grew up in san marcos i spent a lot of time in mira mesa um just like the suburban sprawl parts of san diego county and i spent a fucking lot of time on highways freeways in the parlance of 
California. Of California. Um, just a lot of time running errands and driving and parking in these shopping center parking lots. And, and I would even like walk to one of these shopping center parking lot spaces when I was like around the time I was 12 or 13 and I started walking around my city um, and walking around my city was like a deeply dehumanizing thing to do. Like no one is on the sidewalk and you are completely dwarfed by car traffic and and just the 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 not even banality isn't doesn't really capture what I'm trying to say. Like it's it's the, like a banality laced with horror. I think yeah yeah it's 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 horrific the way these spaces are not designed for human beings. They're not designed to be traversed by humans. They're they're unlovely and uninviting and uninspiring and depressing. But they are literally all that's on offer. Right. And so I just inhabited them all the time. And I was like, why am I so restless? Why do I want to be somewhere else? And why do I respond so kind of like palpably and, and just deep in my body when, I, when I'm in the handful of spaces in San Diego that don't feel like that? Balboa Park, um, certain parts of like the actual city of San Diego, the parts of it that feel like it's built on a grid or there's a little bit of density or you don't have to mash the button across the street. It's just the light changes and you can cross the street. Um, Hillcrest, uh, you know, just these like the, the urban bits. Um, I, I'm angry about that. I'm still angry about it because it's not just San Diego. It's, it's our entire country and it's, it's the um, it's the prior the prioritization of whatever money can be reaped from developing land like that over the lived experience of humans, and I'm just sort of desperate to chronicle it and to to just render this this unpoetic, hideous mistake that is like the mistake of the 20th century. We, you do it so well. You know, we, <laughs> feel, we feel the sadness of America <laughs> quite oh, palpably. And maybe the specific sadness of California or of San mm. Diego, which is uh, both like a place of, you know, freeways, a place where you can't walk or where you can't walk many places, but also a place doused in sunshine and a place of mythology. Mm -hmm. you know, the California, like the, the golden state of California. Mm -hmm. Was that important to you while you were writing Silver Beach? How did you yeah. conceptualize California? I mean, I, I think for me, it was, it was the, um, the, the dissonance between the dream of California and the reality of driving on a freeway past a jacuzzi warehouse. Um, and I just yeah, felt like dissonant. that... <laughs> I felt like the dream of California was such a lie. Um, you know, that like you, there are beautiful places and there's beautiful places underneath the concrete. Um, but even, even with the concrete, there are beautiful places, but you have to drive to them. Or I would take a bus to them and it would take me like an hour and a half to go not very many miles. And were people surprised that you rode the bus? I often find this is like a very American thing where like people will be surprised that you took a Greyhound bus to Boston. Yeah. You know, I mean, people on the bus weren't surprised, but right. 
certainly in high school, like it, it was a super weird thing to do because I went to a high school where the kids had their own cars. Um, yeah, and it was just like, again, like since it's not a walkable place, you're, you're kind of stuck. Um, so it was important to me to, um, to write about that, that dissonance and that deep, deep ambivalence. And, and what I guess, like it comes from a place of anger, this, this anger at like this wasted, wasted cityscape. Like if we're gonna have a built environment, why does it have to be so shitty? And, and not like that's, it's not like a, an animating part of the plot of the story, but it's, it's there. <laughs> Yeah. And so, so that, yeah, like, it's just kind of a, um, it's a tone in the book. It's not really a plot point. Yeah. And I feel that I, I, I it goes back to Shannon. I feel like Shannon is kind of like the canary in the coal mine of late capitalism in America. Her, her despair and also in some ways her muted despair. She can't, mm. she can't find the language to be angry about it. And yeah. maybe she will, maybe she won't. Totally. Yeah, like like that that sense of like something obviously being shitty, but everyone around you is like, this is great. Do you think that's a Californian thing? It's definitely something that is present in California and that really drove me crazy. Like isn't this great? There's no weather. <laughs> Isn't the weather great? Like, no, it's boring and it's too much sunshine. I mean, it's obviously beautiful, um, but the weather was not something that moved me growing up. Um, I'm actually very moved by the seasons. I like, I like that they kind of push you around out here. Um, that said, like, I, I do like the subtle changes. Like, I really love June gloom and May gray. Um, I liked any relief from the sunshine. <laughs> right. So how did you, how did you come to, well, you described yourself as a recovering Californian. Which I, I think, think we have some, but <laughs> no, I, I don't think, I, I don't know if California cares. There are plenty of, you know, millions and millions of other people who are happy to live there. Converted Californians. Converted Californians. I have some sense of what you were recovering from, but, um, how did you get out and why did you just stay, decide to stay away? Um, I mean, I just, I felt like I didn't fit in culturally. And the first time I went to New York City, I was like, oh, I actually am normal. I'm just in the wrong place. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's hard to grow up in a place that anything about yourself, except for maybe in a negative way. Like you can say, I am not this. Yeah. I'm not, you know, this golden child of California. Yeah. Um, I felt, I, I said this another time talking to you, I felt like at my high school, there was literally a factory that was like manufacturing identical girls. And that's like, I, I shouldn't say that that's dehumanizing, that's messed up. Like they were actual people, but they <laughs> somehow looked, they looked the same and they wore the same clothes. <laughs> And they were, um, and I didn't look like them. I was thicker and I had darker hair and, and I, my clothes were from thrift stores and, and I just had this like sensibility that seemed really alien. Um, 
I just, I, I applied to a college in the Northeast and uh, it was the only college I got into and they gave me a scholarship and I went. And that is how I learned about New York City because people would leave um, campus for the weekend and go to the city and I'd, I'd hitch a ride and go with them. And it was pretty much all about triangulating to end up in New York City at that point. And here I am and I'm never leaving. And it worked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it worked. And I, I am paid by the city of New York. <laughs> the mayor exactly. sends my paychecks. Or maybe it's the comptroller. I don't know who it is. Right. Um, so did, did you start writing in California? Yeah, I started writing plays in high school. Like I, I took myself seriously as a playwright in high school. And um, I entered the Plays by Young Writers contest and won that two years in a row, my senior year in high school and my freshman year in college. And so two of my plays were produced at the Old Globe Theater by Playwrights Project. And that was incredible. And they just take young people really seriously and treat them like artists, um, like professionals. And, and so that was really formative. And um, so fiction came later. Fiction came a lot later. I, I think in, in college, I was like, I'm a playwright. Uh, but I also kind of was writing these weird prose nonfiction pieces. And then in my 20s, I was like, I'm a playwright, I'm a dramaturg, I'm an essayist. Um, and I took a job waiting tables with the intention of like primatizing my writing life. And then I found that that was actually not enough structure and I was too drifty and I would spend the whole day like anticipating my shift. <laughs> and I didn't have health insurance. Um, so I became a teacher kind of like partly for the job security, like there was a union and a decent starting salary and, a, and health insurance. Um, and partly because I felt like I wanted to do something difficult that would just force me to focus. Um, so I, I do kind of envy those people who went and got their MFAs when they were younger, but I just didn't have a clarity of purpose at that point. And I, I wanted to do something hard, almost as an artist, as much as, as a person. And somehow in 2009, I started writing fiction, like the form opened itself up to me. I don't really know how or why, but it was the summer hmm. of 2009. What, what were you writing about in 2009? I mean, I started this. Um, or I started this soon after that. I, I was writing like just these kind of like interlude slice of life pieces, people who were experiencing some degree of alienation and felt misunderstood by other people. And so in its, in its earlier form, Silver Beach was a short story. Yeah, only because I, I didn't know what it was and I, didn't know how to write a novel. And then what, what allowed you to open it up and make it a novel? Well, um, at Hunter, Colin was like, you're all writing novels. And I said, okay, I guess I'm writing a novel. And, and that was all I needed to like decide that it was a novel. And I'm, I'm much more of a long writer. So um, I, like, I didn't need much of a sense of permission to write a novel before my sensibility just kind of took over. I find short stories much more challenging 
I do too. I, I don't, I think it's a different rhythm and I, I don't understand what they contain and why, in some ways, why you would want to contain something. It always seems like it could have a longer life. Mm-hmm. They're very mysterious. I, I can't figure out what makes them tick. I think I've written two that I feel decent about, both of which you've read. We didn't say that we're in a writer's group together, but we are. Oh yeah, we, we formed a quarantine writer's group. I haven't seen you in person since, oh no, I saw you earlier this year. I was gonna say I haven't seen you since 2019, but that's not true. Oh yeah. I saw no, you right true. before you moved uptown. Right, right, right. Yeah. In the rain. Yeah, in the rain, in the season, in the cold, seen, wintry season. Yeah. I haven't seen you unmasked since uh, our, our night at the bar with the writers. Right. Oh, right. that was great. Yeah. Um, what were we talking about? Uh, short stories. Short stories. And why we can't uh, write them. Yeah. Yeah. They're really mysterious. Like, like you and I were talking earlier about um, how many times we've both run, run to the bookshelf, pulled off Alice Monroe, tried to figure out what she is doing so that we could do it ourselves. And you can't do it, my friend. It's impossible. No, you can't. I mean, <laughs> Alice Monroe, it's, it's, in some ways, her short stories are always like novellas to me. And in some ways, because they're often about similar people in similar places, it seems like it's one giant meta novel yeah. about you know, women in Canada in this particular time. Um, yeah. And that sort of like very local theme being universal. But you do, you do pull off this Alice Monroe trick at the end. We won't give it away, but in, in my opinion, <laughs> you do the sort of uh, classic Alice Monroe thing where you have a, a paragraph set at some point in the future that somehow just opens opens the world of this novel even more and you have an Alice Monroe like disappearance as well mm. <laughs> I don't know if you've marked on the the number of stories she has where characters leave no they run away they disappear you're totally right yeah how did you how did you do it how did you I mean I know I know since you you wrote this book over a number of years and you had um, you know, some of its some of its elements were always there, and then you had, as you told me earlier, a completely different second half at one point. A horrible maudlin second half. How 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 did you get rid of it and then write something so much better in its place? I don't know when. I don't remember the moment when I realized it needed to go in the garbage. I just know that it had been rejected by an agent which it would go on to be rejected by like 20 more agents after I rewrote it. But somehow it became clear. I mean, probably because it was obvious, like it, it just was really dramatic and, and kind of forced. Um, and so like, I, I think I felt like it had integrity up to a point and then I was like, oh, here's where it really starts to lose its mind. And I did something I've never been able to do before or since at that point, which was actually map out what would happen, like kind of per chapter from the middle to the end, this needs to happen, this needs to happen, this needs to happen, and I just need to fill it in. And it was very systematic. Um, and I've, I've tried, I, I tried so many times to write like plot outlines and be really mathematical about it. And it never, ever, ever, ever worked except this one time. But it was also because I'd already written the novel. Um, 
So, so I did that and it was, and it was just very satisfying. Like I'd sit down and be like, da, 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 da. like I filled in this part, but Shannon leaving was a complete surprise to me. I didn't think she would do that. And she, she kind of ran off the page and I was like, oh, oh girl, you need to go. Oh, I get it. She did need to go. <laughs> do you think, do you think of her as the most elusive character or were there other characters who were, who were hard to write? She was, she's not elusive. I think Linda was really hard to write until I saw Grey Gardens. And then I was like, you can be that crazy and be real. Not that crazy is not the word. You can be that deluded and that outrageous and that wonderful and be a, an alive person. And she's not an alive person, but she needed to seem like an alive person. She's medically alive for decades. <laughs> she you know? really is. She's medically alive for decades. She's remarkably hardy. Yes. Do you want to talk about Linda's fam um, chosen family? She doesn't like her daughters. She doesn't particularly like her daughters because they're not Allison. Yeah. But she does like her friends. She does because they're performers. And they, um, they, they perform they perform femininity and they live these are the the drag queens the drag of silver queens. beach yeah of goldens um they they know how to access and live in uh, a sort of imagined reality that they that they make real but that's better than this one and they can dance and they're fabulous and they look great so of course they're friends. I mean, it's, it's awfully kind of them to let her in. <laughs> but, but I also think like she has this undeniable charisma. They're just like, definitely. What? <laughs> what is happening? But you know, like I'm here for it. Yeah. Maybe to end, we could talk about what you, since this is a novel that is so much about what we owe family or what we cannot give our family. How, how did that inform the writing of Silver Beach? I'm, I'm just super fascinated with the question of what we owe family and all the ways that parents can and always fail. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in that sense of responsibility and what happens when it kind of stretches till it snaps. And I couldn't tell you why. And it but does in this book, and up. it's the, the stuff of great novels. Thank you so much for sharing your work with us, Claire. Um, and Claire, thank you for your thoughtful questions. Today's guests, once again, were Claire Cox and Claire Needham, and they were discussing Silver Beach. You can order your copy at skylightbooks.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.